All right, well, let's get started. If you're not from St. Philip's, um, our rector is on his way to Pennsylvania right now to see his second child graduate from college. So he's asked me, I'm, I'm uh, Ryan Street, I'm one of the assistants to the rectors here at St. Philip's. Uh, he asked me to fill in, and I was happy to do so. Let's get started with a word of prayer. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that you would uh, please be with Jeff and Kristen and his family as they travel up to Pennsylvania. We ask that you would uh, encamp your angels around them to watch over them, to protect them, and to bring them back home safely. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Well, we'll be in Psalm chapter 1 today. We're going to take a, a brief break from Matthew, and we're going to divert into Psalm 1, and Jeff will pick up with Matthew when he gets back next week. So if you have your Bible, pull it out and, and uh, go to Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I often watch the people walking, I'm a, a people watcher, I'll watch the people walking along uh, the sidewalk outside of the church here, and I, and I wonder to myself, you know, what is it that makes that particular person tick? What is it? What's their, you know, what's the desire they're carrying around in their heart? What's their greatest desire? And like, what are they striving for? What are they seeking? But I'm fairly certain that I know what it is. They seek happiness. They seek a sense of, of well-being, contentment. It may very well be the motive behind most of what they do in life. And it's not only them out there, is it? Right? It's, it's, it's us in here too. Everyone wants to be happy. It's universal. It's a universal longing. Well, Psalm 1 gives us a description of how the happy person lives. And I want to just draw out a few principles from it today to help you live the good life. Most scholars believe that Psalm 1 um, was written after the entire Psalter was complete. It was the last one written, and it was written as a kind of finishing touch, defining the contents of the entire 
book. So Psalm 1 functions as a sort of, of prologue or an introduction to the entire book of the Psalms. And it's a fitting introduction in that it, it summarizes the Psalms' emphasis throughout of the two ways that are open to mankind. And there are only two. We may describe them in different ways. We may uh, talk about them in different ways. But there is the way of the righteous and there's the way of the wicked. Or we may say it another way, the way of the blessed and the way of the cursed. And the blessings which Psalm 1 here says will accompany those who love His Word are supposed to, to kind of whet our appetites to take in and to meditate on every single word of the book of Psalms. Well, let's jump into the psalm itself. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. It starts out, Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. So first, we need to answer the question, well, what does it mean? What does it mean to be blessed? The Hebrew word that's most often translated into English as, as blessed is barak. It's the word barak. However, that word is usually applied to God. It's got this sense of, of praise that it evokes. Barak. Blessed be God, right? That's what we say in the Book of Common Prayer. That's what we hear in the Eucharistic liturgy on Sunday mornings. Those, those of you who are in the Anglican church, we start off the service, blessed be God. It evokes this sense of praise to God. But the Hebrew word that's used here in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 is not the word Barak. It is the word Asher. Asher. And if you know your Old Testament, you're, you're probably saying to yourself right now, well, wasn't, wasn't, uh, wasn't that one of the twelve tribes of Israel? Wasn't it called the tribe of Asher? And you'd be right. Asher was the eighth tribe of Israel, which came from the eighth-born son of the patriarch Jacob. You may recall that in the book of Genesis, Jacob uh, was married to two sisters. Does anyone remember the name of those two sisters? Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah. That's right. Well, these two sisters had something of a, a baby-making contest. And, and you don't believe me, read Genesis chapter 30 when you get home. These, these were strange times. Right? Strange times they were living in. Kind of like the ones we're living in right now. Well, when one of the two sisters couldn't get pregnant for one reason or another, they would bring uh, the handmaiden in, the servant girl. And they'd bring her in to Jacob, and the, maid, the, the handmaiden would get pregnant and, and bear a child, all in proxy for them, all in proxy for Rachel or Leah. And uh, that, that's it's kind of like half of a good deal. <laughs> Some of you who had... Difficult pregnancies are thinking, I don't know, it sounds like the full deal to me. <laughs> well, let's, let's look at what happens here from Genesis chapter 30, verses 9 to 13. It says, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. 
So she called his name Asher. Asher. Did you catch it? Happy am I. Women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. What does Asher mean? Happy. It means to be in a state of happiness. And in Psalm 1, Asher, it means happy, but it's actually used in the plural here, which describes the fullness of this word, happy. The fullness of happy. So Psalm 1 literally begins, Oh, how very happy is the man. Oh, how very happy is the man. That's what this word blessed means in its essence. And it's not this, you know, this kind of superficial happiness that just comes and goes based upon the circumstances in life. No, it's this deep sense of happiness, of fulfillment, of well-being, of, of joy that flows not from our own meager supply, but from God's bottomless well. The blessed one has found that, that well of living water in a relationship with God through His Son. And they are learning to use this, the instrument of God's Word to draw up water from that well and to drink deeply. I wonder, does this describe you today? Are, are, are you blessed? If not, it could, it could be because you've not encountered the divine source of, of blessedness Himself. You haven't placed your trust in the source of life in the Savior Jesus Christ. Oh, if you do, he will, he will come to you and He will pour into your heart the blessed Holy Spirit from whom pure happiness flows. Or, it could be because you've not begun using the instrument of His Word like a, like a bucket in a well to go down deeply and to draw up the graces and the promises from the person of the living Christ to apply to your life. Right? Because it's, it's from here it's from His Word that the Holy Spirit nourishes us upon Christ. You say, well, well, what about the sacraments? What about the supper? These are amazing gifts from God, from Christ to His bride, the church. But the sacraments of the church, they flow forth from His Word, right? What do I mean? Well, how do we know to eat the bread? How do we know that we're supposed to have this meal, this bread and this wine? How do we know the promises of God that are attached to that meal? We know them by His Word, right? That's how we know they flow forth from the Word of God. Do you go there to find His promises for your life so that you can pray over them and, and trust in them? Do you go there to find the way that He's called you to live? Maybe you don't have the motivation. Maybe the Bible it's, it's just too daunting too difficult to understand, so you just give up. And I empathize with that. I do. But if this is you, my, my goal and my hope for you today is that you'll find here some motivation and encouragement to daily go to His Word and to find the blessing your soul so desperately needs. But before we get to what the blessed person does in verse 2, we have to see what the blessed person does does not do in verse 1. It says, Blessed is the man, or how very happy is the man, right? How very happy is the man. How happy is the man who does not do what? Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat 
or it stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. This is a good maxim for the Christian life. The authenticity of our Christian life will be determined by not doing certain things that we should not do, and by doing certain things that we should do. Okay? The next verse will focus on the positive, what we should be doing. This verse, verse 1, focuses on the negative, what we should not be doing. Now, there appears to be this uh, regression here. There's this increase in straying from God that this, this verse will clarify for us. It's a regression of which I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we can see in our own lives from time to time. Even in this preacher, I, I see this in me. And I want to learn. I want all of us to learn to recognize it so that when we, when we see it, creeping into our lives, creeping into our heart, we can avoid it like the plague. Well, let's look at how this happens. Look what it says. First, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. What does it mean to walk in the counsel of the wicked? Well, it's to come under the influence of the wicked somehow. They just start you know, we just kind of start listening to the voice of the wicked or, or observing the wicked. It could be through a person we work with or a new relationship in our life that we've made or through a particular social circle that we've begun to go around with. We could come under the influence of the wicked by way of social media or by a TV show or a movie. Either way, somehow... By way of our eyes and our ears, we have opened up our lives to the influence of the wicked, and we walk in its counsel. Then what happens next? In the regression. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Then it says, nor stands in the way of sinners. Now we're no longer just coming under the influence of the wicked, right? We're no longer just listening or, or observing their counsel. It says now, we stand in their way. We stand in the way of sinners. So now we've, we've accepted the lifestyle of the wicked. We're no longer just being influenced by them. We're no longer just listening or watching. No, we have stopped and we have taken our stand with them. We've accepted their counsel and we've joined with them in their lifestyle. We've adopted their attitudes. And we've given ourselves over to their habits. Now what's the final step in this regression? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners. And here's the final step. Nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. What is the final step? They join the wicked in their scorn and in their mocking of the righteous. These are the ones who call good evil and evil good. These are the ones who want to make you feel stupid for believing in God and trying to follow His Son Jesus. If you listen to them long enough, you'll begin to walk in their counsel. You will until you find yourself standing with them, and in the end, you will have become like them. It's a regression from walking to standing to sitting, from activity to passivity. 
from being able to move freely in and out of their patterns, their habits of sin, from being able to choose to participate with them or to not participate with them, to take it up or to leave it, to a state of internal imprisonment to their sinful ways. Those of you who have read the Divine Comedy or or, or Dante's Inferno will remember that, that in his vision of hell, the people who had regressed to the deepest level of sin were placed in the ninth and the lowest circle of hell. And do you remember where they were placed? What it was they were placed in? They were placed in a lake of ice. Frozen. The people were frozen under sheets of ice. Not fire. They weren't burning. They were placed under sheets of ice. Why? They were frozen in their sins. Imprisoned in their sins, they were handed over to themselves, imprisoned in their sin eternally. And that's the ultimate regression of sin that is pictured here. The movement of this first verse of Psalm 1 is from wicked to sinners to scoffers, from the person who is influenced by wrongdoing to the habitual wrongdoer to the person who is fixed in his ways and despises the godly. And apart from repentance and turning to Jesus Christ in faith so that His blood, the blood of His cross, can save them and free them from this regression, their ultimate end at death will be hell. Where their final state will become irreversible. Now in light of this verse, I want us to apply this to our own lives and ask ourselves the hard questions. These are hard questions. You ready? Here's the first one. Are there any influences of the wicked in my life that must be removed? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I was with a few guys the other day, not from this church. (laughs) Not from this church. Not even from Charleston. How's that? Who were talking about the Bible and, and Jesus and theology and all of this, and then one of them said, hey, did you watch Game of Thrones last night? I'm going, what? You're talking about God's Word, His glory, Jesus, the holiness of Christ, and you watch the most barbaric, sexualized, moral filth that's been created in some time, and you delighted in it? You felt no shame about watching murder and incest and pornography, watching them play out before your eyes? I know what they were probably thinking. They were probably thinking, well, tons of people across the world watch it. They were watching it at the same time. It came on cable TV. I mean, come on. It can't be wicked. But do you see how easy it is for us to be be desensitized to wickedness, to, to relabel what's good and evil, to allow the culture to become our moral authorities? all in order so that we can become more easily influenced by the wicked. That's how the process of sin, it begins, right? That's how it begins its course. Are there things influencing your life that are actually the voice of the wicked? It's a good question. Now, now, of course, we're not supposed to move out to some cave somewhere and, and, and only be with holy people, right? We're not, because there would be no one to be with, and sooner or later, we would contaminate the place. So we're not called to do that. 
We're called to interact with all men, to love all men. But the Apostle Paul does tell us in 2 Corinthians 6.14 that you're never to become unequally yoked with unbelievers. What does that mean? Well, when I was in India, um, in the rainy season several years back, it would get too muddy to travel. Uh, We were in the jungle, and it just got too muddy to travel to the different villages that we were trying to travel to on a rickshaw. We were trying to preach in all the villages we could. So we had to travel by a cart and oxen. And there were two oxen that they would yoke together. They'd put a wooden yoke over them, kind of like a beam over their necks, so that they were stuck together. And if those oxen were not in agreement about where they were going, we would have a fight on our hands. Right, Because one was going where the other was going, or the other was going where the one was going, or else they were just going to fall down. They were just going to crash. And that's what will happen if we're yoked together to the wicked. If you ever come into a relationship with a person whose influence begins to move you away from devotion to Jesus Christ, away from godliness, then you have to cut the relationship with that person. Remember what Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now that's hyperbole. He doesn't mean to mutilate yourself. He's simply saying this is very important. It really is. If there is an influence in your life that is leading you away from Scripture, away from the Lord, it's changing your attitude. It's changing your conversations. It's all you talk about now. Jesus is now secondary. Those things need to be cut out. It can be friends, it can be shows, it can be media, whatever it is, it's best to cut it off now before it leads you down the next step of regression. Okay, let's move on to the second question. Are there any areas of your life where you have accepted the lifestyle of the wicked? One of the ways to answer this is to ask yourself if your lifestyle would bring you under any scrutiny to those who do not love Jesus Christ, who are not devoted to Jesus Christ? Would they join you arm in arm with what you're now doing? Would they walk with you in this newfound life in Jesus Christ? You need to ask yourself, not only are there influences, but what influences have so impacted my thinking that now I've adopted that as my lifestyle? I've adopted that lifestyle as my own. It can be with regard to our thoughts, to our words, to our attitudes, inappropriate relationships, what you allow into your mind through media, through shows. And here's the last question. Do you ever find yourself scoffing or scorning those who walk, act, and live with greater circumspection or strictness to the law of God than you do? Do we find ourselves scoffing at them for seeming to us holier than thou, pious little prancers. It's very easy to become a scoffer and a mocker. If we find that attitude in our heart, it needs to be operated on. And it needs to be operated on quick. Okay, well now that we have seen what the righteous do not do, let's look at what the righteous do. Let's move on to the second verse. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I've told some of you this 
several weeks back uh, at a Wednesday Alive, so some of you will remember, but um, when my wife Anna and I were dating, we were big letter writers. And I know people probably don't write letters much when dating anymore because of texting and all of that, but we spent a lot of time writing to one another letters with, with pen and paper. It was the perfect means to express what we thought of one another because in letters we could carefully you know, think through what we wanted to say. I remember spending hours at a time thinking about the placement of a single word because I felt like it was that important to communicate exactly what I thought about her and what my intentions for the relationship were. And then I would study her letters <laughs> with the same devotion I used when writing them. And don't judge me. Some of you did the same thing. Well, God has given you and me a collection of letters and songs and stories of which every word has been carefully thought out and placed in its precise place to communicate exactly what His thoughts and His intentions are for us for this relationship that He's called us to walk out with Him. The question is, will we use the same devotion when reading and meditating on His thoughts and His will for us that He used when He wrote it? This verse says that the person who does this, who has made this their practice, this is the person that is the blessed person. Oh, how very happy is this person. Now, what does the blessed man do? What does the happy man do? First it says, he delights in the law of the Lord. And second, it says he meditates on his law day and night. So first, what does it mean to delight in the law of the Lord? The word delight here, it means simply to, to take pleasure in. The Word of God, it brings them pleasure. They are pleased with what God has commanded. It sits well in their soul, with their heart. I remember one time talking with a guy who had left the church, who grew up in the church, but had become so embittered by, by any idea of organized religion. I don't know exactly what happened to him, but something that really hurt him. And he would say to me, you know, why do you insist on teaching that, that we should live according to this archaic and oppressive uh, law? These, these laws that enslave us. So I said, you know, I'm, I'm just curious, which, which law is that? Because you have to ask which, which law it is. is. Is it the one that says you shall not take your neighbor's wife? Is that the law that, that, that disagrees with your lifestyle? Maybe you need to change your lifestyle. Is it the one that says you don't bear false witness against your neighbor? Is that the law that oppresses you? Do not murder? See, it's important to ask them exactly what it is because a lot of times they're just following the culture. There's this feeling in them. There's this angst towards what people have told them about God's Word and about His people. See, the blessed man sees the law is good, not as bondage, not as burdensome, but as a delight, something that, that actually brings true happiness to the soul. The question is, do you delight in the Word of God? Do you delight in it? Do you take pleasure in it? And if your answer is yes, then the next question becomes, well, do you meditate on it day and night? You see, if I just say, you know, in my heart of hearts, I delight in the Word of God, but I never practice, make a practice of it, is there any reality in what I'm saying? 
If I say I love my wife, but then I never spend time with her, there's a problem. If I, if I say I, I love her, but then I never think of her, well, there, there's a problem there, isn't there? There's this disconnect. I'm, I'm not living in reality. My actions are not matching up. There's this sense of, of delusion. What's well, the same way with delighting in God's Word? We, we can so often just say, oh, I delight in the Word of God. I love the Word. I believe the Word. But does it really bring me enough pleasure? It, it, does it, is it become essential to my life? That I, that I want it as much as I want food three times a day. See, delighting in the Word means we look forward to being in the Word. We look forward to feeding on it. We, we need it. Second of all, it says, the blessed man meditates on the law of God day and night. Now, what does it mean to meditate? Really, it's the exact opposite of what New Age spirituality teaches. Biblical uh, meditation is not to... We don't empty our minds. Right? New Age spirituality tells us we just we empty our minds. But that's not what the Bible tells us to do. It's the opposite. It's to fill our minds with the Word. There's, there's actually a lot packed into this Hebrew word for meditate. It's the word haggai. It, it can mean to ponder, to, to moan, to slowly digest, to chew, even to growl. It, it, this is the picture of the person who's like the dog with a fresh bone between his chops. He delights in it. And because he delights in it, he's going to get that bone, and then he's going to go find a, a quiet place where he can be all by himself, and he's going to slowly gnaw that bone to pieces. This is the picture of meditation. It's also um, like a cow eating grass. How many, how many stomachs does the cow have? Four stomachs, yes. So... He eats the grass, it goes in there, he digests it, it comes right back up again, it goes right back into his mouth, and he chews it again, and he digests it, it comes up, he does it again. He does that four times. And what's he doing? He's getting all of the nutrients possible out of that grass. And it's the same idea here with meditation, right? That you're just going back and forth, drawing out more and more from the Word of God, you're thinking and putting words together and comparing word to word, verse to verse, and gradually you're growing and seeing this beautiful picture of how God's wisdom truly works in the life of a human being. You see, biblical meditation, it's something that's far more than just a cursory read. It is a slow, thought-filled reading of the word from a posture of faith because we trust that God's will and His desire for His people are made known right here. So we delight in that word. And like a love letter written to you, to me, to us, we hold it close to our hearts while being careful to think through and consider why God has placed each sentence and word exactly where He has placed them. And, and we ruminate on them. We, we stew on them. We, we draw out its meaning. And we do that. Well, as we do that, we'll begin to find that the Holy Spirit uses this meditation of Scripture to condition our hearts, to fine-tune our hearts to the sound of His voice. We begin to hear His voice more clearly in our lives because our hearts and our minds are being finely tuned by His Word to know His will and be empowered to obey it. So we fine-tune our minds, our hearts to the voice of 
of the Holy Spirit. My sheep will know my voice. And I'll call them by name. Some of you may be saying, okay, Ryan, I'm just having trouble getting myself to to meditate on Scripture. I can't can't find the desire to. I read it on my own some, but but I'm I'm not, honestly, I'm not having delight in, in doing it. And that's okay. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to begin to read the Scriptures as a matter of discipline. Do it as hard work, whether it feels like drudgery or or you like it. Just do it. You see, one of the problems is that that Christians will look at people who study and teach the Bible a lot or or who pray a lot, and they'll say, you know, they read the Bible a lot, they pray a lot, and it's because, you know, they're gifted at that. It's, It's just easy for them to do that. So they'll say, well, I'm not gifted. It's not easy for me to do that, so it just it must not be my calling. Except that it is. It's God's will for all of His people to have a living relationship with Him. And you cannot do that without knowing Him through His Word and prayer. And what you've got to understand is that for every Christian, all of them, pastors, teachers, It is a battle. Do I study the Bible? Yes, I do, but it is a battle. I don't want to stay up late at night sometimes. I have several other things that I'd like to do. It's even harder now that I have children I'm finding out, little ones. Do I I enjoy reading the Bible every time I do it? I would be lying to you if I said I did. It is a battle. I have a good friend my age who had just come off of a ventilator when I went to see him one time. Now, if I were to ask him if it was easy to breathe when the tube came out of his throat, he would say it hurt like crazy to breathe. But he wasn't going to quit breathing just because it hurts or it was too hard. No, it is a battle. But you do it to stay alive, and we meditate on the Word to stay alive spiritually. And not just stay alive, but to thrive. It is impossible to live and grow in the Christian life without being saturated in the Word of God. But here's the wonderful thing that happens. What starts out as pure discipline and obedience will turn in to desire and delight. Right? You don't always start off with desire. You start off with, this is a must. I'm going to do it. And do you know what will begin to happen over time? your palate will begin to change so that you begin to take delight in it. You know, I didn't grow up very, a very educated or, or cultured person. And, and growing up, my parents didn't cook much, so it was mostly just these kids' cuisines and, and other frozen microwavable dinners. I, I grew up on that stuff. And after I married Anna, I learned that there were other things to eat besides what came in little plastic packages because she would make me all sorts of strange tasting healthy things and and honestly I didn't care much for it at the time but she would tell me Ryan you you have to develop a palate to appreciate the finer things in life and one of the things I remember being tough for a while was the cheese I was used to eating Velveeta shells and cheese and nothing but just this Velveeta like this powdered she is it's terrible now that I think about it but she was putting things like 
in front of me like French Brie and Manischego. She was putting that on the table in front of me. And honestly, I was not delighting in it. I just was not delighting in it. But after about six months of consistently eating her cooking, my palate changed. And do you know what? I actually began to delight in it. It, it became pleasurable to me. I, I, still, I still can't do salads. <laughs> but that stuff became pleasurable to me. It, I don't eat rabbit food, not yet. <laughs> you see, I believe that we are born again in Christ quite uncultured, spiritually speaking. But as we begin to cultivate the mind and the heart through meditation on the Word of God, our spiritual palates begin to change, but it takes time. And we learn to reject the slop, the powdered cheese, the common, and to delight in the finer things, the finer things of life, the Word of God and the spiritual realities that are found therein. When we do that, we will begin to reject the counsel of the wicked. We will no longer take our stand with the sinners. We'll no longer join with them in their scoffing and their mocking. By taking delight in and, and meditating on God's Word, we are being transformed, fulfilled, happy, blessed. Well, what is this blessed meditating person like? Verse 3 says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit and its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. What's this, uh, this picture here of a, a tree planted by streams of water? What does it mean? First of all, the picture is of a tree that is it's, it's planted, right? Doesn't trees don't plant themselves. It's planted. This tree has been strategically planted by someone in a place where, where, where it can best survive and thrive. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's, it's no accident that you've been planted where you are. God has strategically planted you in a place where you can grow and bear fruit. You are the tree. Right? God is the planter, and He's planted you strategically. I was over at, um, I'd, I'd taken Cecily fishing a couple Sundays ago, and I actually took her to Father Mark Bhutan's house out in Wadmalaw, and I noticed there that there was this tree just right on the side of the bank, and um, you, could, you could actually see how its roots went down into the water. It was a man-made pond, Someone strategically planted that tree right there where it could get the best nourishment. And, uh, well, that's what he's done with you and me. He has strategically planted us in a place where we can be nourished, where we can survive, but we can also thrive. It says, they are like a tree planted by streams of water. The picture here is of a believer who is planted in a place Right where we can have survival, but we can also thrive. So he's planted the believer in a place with access to God's Word. 
right? And the believer makes much use of it. There are roots that dig deep down into that word. And because of that, there's something noticeably different about them from all the others who live in the midst of the world. When I was living in the Middle East, North Africa area as a missionary, back in 2008, there were, there were large, vast areas that were very dry and barren. It was, I mean, it was just desert, right? Just desert. And you could go for miles and miles on the back of a camel, but you would see nothing but sand and hills. And then all of a sudden, you would run into this little strip of green, little strip of green right smack in the middle of the desert. Why is that? Because it's the one little place for miles and miles where there's water. And so the little seeds that are carried by the wind and and find themselves planted near that water, they grow because their roots are able to find the water supply. And there's blossoms in the desert. But all over the rest of the desert, all around it, for miles and miles, nothing. Desolate. Lifeless. There's no life without water. And there's no spiritual life without the Word of God. Does your life revolve around God's Word? Is it your source of spiritual life? Is it the well from which you draw up and you you drink from Christ? Are you daily drinking from His hands there? Are His life and His words, are they nourishing your soul? If not, you're cut off from the source of spiritual life. You're probably seeking your fulfillment and your happiness from all sorts of fleeting things in this world. But listen, God says you'll find a well of life-giving water right here. Jesus Christ Himself, food for the soul, fulfillment, happiness, vitality. Dig your roots deep down into God's Word. Meditate on it. Grow to delight in it. And look what it says next. It yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This yielding of fruit in its season, this is very important. Right? The benefits of your, your Bible study, of your meditating on Scripture, they're not always going to be immediate. But if you're truly connected to the source, it's guaranteed. Right? Fruit will come. It will come. But why is the fruit not always evident for the blessed? Why is it just noticeable in its season? Why not year around? There's three reasons that I find in Scripture. First of all, times of growth are needed. Times of growth are needed. If a tree bears more fruit than its structure and its trunk and its root system can withstand, it'll just collapse. Its, its limbs will break. Things will be ruined. That's why Paul tells Timothy in chapter 3 of his first letter that leaders in the church shouldn't be recent converts. I've seen young Christians, and, and, and I was one of them, who have sensed something of the power of God on their life and so had stepped out to minister in evangelism or missions or, or healing or preaching or something but they hadn't had sufficient time to build up the structure of their life with the Word of God. And after they were mightily used for a little while, the tree fell over. 
collapsed. Why? Because they didn't have the structure and the form. The tree couldn't properly hold up all of the fruit that it was bearing. Their roots hadn't had time to reach deep down and uh, down enough in order to support it. They didn't have sufficient time to be to be marinated in the Word of God. Oh, they had a bunch of Bible knowledge, yes, but that's not what it was about, right? It's not about mastering the Word. It's about the Word mastering us. And it masters us as we avail ourselves to the conditioning power of the Spirit and the Word to tear down and to build up. To wound and to heal, to be broken and to be formed by the Word and the everyday experiences of life. But it takes time and experience, and mentoring from older, wiser Christians. Trunks and roots need to be established and formed so that when the fruit does come, the structure and the form is there to hold up the fruit. So the tree doesn't just collapse and fall over with all of the pressure and then ruin the tree. So fruit won't always be evident in the blessed because times of growth and the Spirit and the Word are needed. Secondly, fruit is not always evident because as Jesus tells us in John 15, there are times when the Father prunes us. Why does He prune us? He prunes us so that we'll bear a lot more fruit. Have you ever been to a place where someone's pruning vines or, or maybe a fruit tree or something? And you, you think, my goodness, Edward Scissors' hands must have gotten loose here. You go, where's the fruit tree? You've killed it. <laughs> but after time, the tree in all of its beauty is back and it bears even more fruit. Sometimes the Lord will begin to do that in our lives. He'll, he'll prune us all over. He'll, he'll remove several things from our lives which uh, does not make us very happy at the time. And it often hurts. But the pruner is never as close to the tree when he's pruning. He's doing it in deep love. And it's in order to make us bear more fruit. Third, there's just simply times of rest that are needed. There's just simply times of rest. Did you know that the land of Israel required a, a, a rest every seven years? It was called the year of Jubilee. It needed a rest from plowing and sowing and fruit bearing. It's the same way in our lives, isn't it? God can't just use us all out all the time and, and fool. We're human beings. Sometimes we just need to rest. And what I've found in these last several years of, of life and ministry is that if I don't rest, He'll rest me when I don't want to rest. He'll, he'll use the circumstances, whether it be through sickness or something else that calls me to have to rest because He loves me. And He knows that I need to rest. And He loves you and He knows that you need to rest. Now let's quickly look at what the text says next. It says, and its leaf does not wither. What we see here is that fruit will not always be evident. Fruit will not always be evident, but life will. Life will be evident. Even when it seems like you're not bearing much fruit in your ministry, in your life, in this particular season, there's life. 
There's life. The sap is seeping out of the barren, dry bark, and people can see it. People can see it. It affects those around you. They're better off for knowing you because you're connected to the source. I want to run quickly through the next verse. Verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. This is a picture that the psalmist gives us of the wicked. The one who walks in the counsel of the wicked. The one who stands in the way of the sinners. And the one who sits in the seat of the scoffers. What are they like? It says they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Now the picture here is of of the threshing floor at harvest time. Remember that the heads of wheat would be crushed or ground, beat, beat at the threshing floor to separate the kernel from the husk. Then they would take a pile of them and they would toss them up in the air so that the wind would carry away the much lighter husks, also known as the chaff, and the heavier kernel would fall to the ground. Instead of a solid tree, the wicked, is a, they're a hollow shell. He doesn't produce fruit. His life is this husk. He has no roots to hold him steady and to reach the water. He's far from what he was created to be. In fact, it's almost as if he's just a dried up husk of something that once was. Something that existed. He's light. There's no substance to him. There's no weight. He's at the mercy of every breeze and wind of life. An empty husk is not always obvious on the surface. Many who are are chaff mask it very well. Even some who go to church. But eventually, the winnowing fork and the winds of life will reveal the truth. Sometimes it's a crisis that hits them and they do not survive spiritually. The wind blows them away. I'm sure many of you have... um, Sad examples of this in your lives, of friends, family that you have known. But if the person never repents and turns to the Lord, ultimately, we see here that they will be carried away with the wicked to judgment. Verse 5 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The end of the wicked may not be visible in this life. You may not see the final place in which the wind lands them. But you can be sure of this. Since they are chaff, since there is no substance, no spiritual life, no vitality, they will not survive the day of judgment. It says they won't. They'll just collapse. They don't belong with God's life-filled, fruitful people. So as we have said at the beginning, There's two opposing pictures here. On the one hand, there is the blessed who are like a well-watered garden of Eden stemming with life. These are the ones who are nourished on God's living Word. They're planted in the Savior. And on the other hand, there is this dead, empty husk with no fruit, no life, unable to be used for anything. It won't stand the test of fire. It'll burn up. It won't stand in the judgment. And it's unfit to sit in the congregation of the righteous. All right, we're running out of time, so I want to go quickly to verse 6, the last verse. It says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What does that mean? You might say, well, I thought that the Lord knew everything 
including the way of the wicked. Why does, he just know, why does it just say he, just, he knows the way of the righteous here? Well, this is where it helps to understand the Hebrew concept of, of knowing, of know, which indicates intimacy. Sometimes it's even used to indicate sexual intimacy. The word that's translated know here is the word yada. Right? It, it's the same exact word used in Genesis chapter 4 when it says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So the whole idea here, it means this. The Lord is intimately acquainted with those who belong to Him. And He is intensely concerned with their well-being and directly involved in their lives to bring about His desired outcome. Now, if you're a Christian and your desire is to become like Jesus Christ, that you love Jesus Christ, this is wonderful news. He knows everything about you. He knows everything in your life. He's intimately involved in every aspect of your life. Does that encourage you? Oh man, it encourages me. It encourages me also to saturate my life in His Word knowing that He is forming and He is shaping me into the person He wants me to be. He's building up structures and He's forming me. Don't be chaff lifeless, dead, useless, that's driven away and forgotten and is no more, that just perishes and no word is ever spoken of them again. Don't be like that. Don't lose your life. Be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. Be like that. But let me tell you, you'll only be planted by those streams when you come to the God who is the planter. And you say, Lord, I am a sinner. I have walked in the counsel of the wicked. I have stood in the way of sinners. And the attitude of my heart has sat with the scoffers. But now, O God, wash me in the blood of Jesus. Make me eternally clean and plant me in Christ. Let my roots go deep down in Your Word And then pour out Your Holy Spirit on me so that I bear fruit in its season. If you turn to Him, He will do that. He will do that. He will be intimately involved in your well-being. He will guide you to those streams of water. He will restore your soul. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your kindness to us. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. We bless You for Him. We know that it's in Him we are able to be planted by streams of water. It's in Him that we are able to be restored and comforted. We pray that You would incline our hearts to Him, to His Word, that You would give us, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, delight in Your Word. That we would take it, that we would meditate on it, that we would be nourished by it. And we ask it all in the powerful and the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.